0: Welcome to the Agora Fertility Journals, where we talk about empowering the freedom of reproductive choice for everyone. I'm Natalie Silverman, host of the Fertility Podcast, and the Agora invited me to visit them in Hove, where they support a wide range of individuals and couples on their route to parenthood with wisdom, compassion, and honesty. This podcast series is all about their stories, dreams, and actual journeys to parenthood, The Agora Journals. We hope you enjoy them. In this first episode, Clinical Director Carol Gilling smith explains her motivation for setting up the clinic, her love for education amongst young people, and the wide range of work the Agora does for its community.
1: I really believe that we have to start fertility education very young, obviously in schools, but also there's a a range of, of places where we can put fertility education into society when people are in their 20s even, not necessarily thinking about having children, making people a little bit more aware, fertility aware, aware of their bodies, aware of the biological time clock, aware of some of the toxic substances that may be harmful.
0: Carol has been developing a strong support network for the LGBTQ community, ensuring everyone is supported in their experience of fertility treatments whether they're looking to preserve their fertility for the future, or have a baby now.
1: I'm Carol Gillingsmith. I am a consultant gynaecologist, and I set up the Agora in 2006. It came from a, a desire to set up a perfect fertility clinic, which we all set out to do. I had been in fertility for nearly 20 years, and it's it was my passion to be able, able to offer patients Sort of journey that I would want to experience if I was a patient. So, a very caring journey and a journey where I could feel as a patient that I was listened to and that I was treated as an individual. And it came from that, and I decided to come down to Sussex where I was already living because there wasn't a clinic here. And right from the start, I wanted to have a very central involvement with the patient care. So, I wasn't just managing a clinic or a business, I was Going to be seeing patients and interviewing and appointing all the staff so that they could share my philosophy.
0: Now, I've come to spend the day with you at the Agora to capture some of the stories of the diverse patients that you work with, as well as talk to some of your staff. And we've spoken a lot about the emphasis that you put on facility education, and you've been doing a range of projects involved with Fertility Fest earlier in the year and you've done work here at the clinic. Talk to me a bit about your focus on that education in the work that you're doing.
1: I think it comes to me naturally to educate patients because so many patients come to me in their late 30s, early 40s and you start to have a conversation about you know why they're there and you start to explain to them a little bit about their fertility. And whether it be women or men, I, I'm always quite shocked that they have so little understanding about their own body and their own limitations fertility-wise. And I really believe that we have to start fertility education very young, obviously in schools, but also there's a, there's a range of, of places where we can put fertility education into society when people are in their 20s even, not necessarily thinking about having children making people a little bit more aware, fertility aware, aware of their bodies, aware of the biological time clock, aware of some of the toxic substances that may be harmful. And I like to continue that into the groups of society for whom there isn't really a book about it. There isn't something that's been you know, easy to pick up and find out where to go next. One example is patients transitioning. There is so little out there for them to actually be able to read and say this is proper information I know where I'm going now so the work I'm doing for that community really is to listen to them listen to their questions and try and put some of their answers into a format that they can understand you know that a patient can digest and understand so they can move a little bit further on in their journey of exploration
0: because that open dialogue is something that's been at the core of how you've developed how you work with the LGBTQ community in that you've asked for their feedback on what could change and I know for example when I spoke with Satch um, things like paperwork pronouns used in paperwork that may be overlooked and I, I hear from people even for example if a woman is going down the solo motherhood route she might be referred to as a single mum rather than the so, a solo mum which is such a subtle difference so thinking of somebody transitioning and how triggering the incorrect pronouns are the fact that you've been able to have that dialogue and has then enabled you to really develop what you're doing, hasn't it? It has.
1: It it absolutely has. When when I first came and lived in Brighton and I realised there was a, a whole group of people out there who wanted to have children. They weren't infertile and we had a standard fertility questionnaire, you know, and it talked about the man and the woman and it was offensive to hand that out and I very quickly picked up from that community that we had to ask the questions we had to ask them what were they sensitive to what would they like to see more of or less of and I've done that with all the different groups in the LGBT population ever since then I've found that to be the, the best way of engaging uh, in a dialogue so that we can really offer a bespoke treatment to different different groups of patients uh, my background, having come from London, where I worked with the HIV population, had taught me, you know, that HIV is a taboo word. And people feel really, you know, they, they don't want to be f- feeling different to the rest of the people in the clinic. So you don't make a big issue about it. You know, you don't have great big posters saying, where, you know, where, where are you? The, if, you're, if you're an HIV positive person, we can help you. You keep it really quite subtle. And that's what we do with our LGBT patients. So when they come along, they are welcome uh, into, into our fertility clinic. Whatever their, their problem may be or, or not, they want to have a family just like everybody else. And one of the things that we did over the last two years was to completely scrap our old patient questionnaire. And we said, you're either a provider of eggs or you're a provider of sperm. And that came from one patient coming and saying, I'm non-binary. And it made us really think none of our paperwork was really adapted and now we're doing quite a lot of work on you know careful use of the pronouns so that actually it doesn't really matter who comes through the door we've been sensitive to you know how they like to be perceived and their their gender identity and you know what makes them them
0: Whilst we're focusing on on the trans community one of the things that you and I had spoken about was the point in which fertility preservation needs to happen and trying to get that message out to help because I know that you've got experience you've got a staff member here who wasn't aware of their options and made the transition and hadn't preserved their fertility and, and that's a regret that they have to live with so how would you explain that point of time that needs to be people need to be made more aware of
1: whatever gender you're assigned to at birth we now recognize that it can be wrong and that you can during childhood adolescence and early adulthood come to realize your real gender identity is the opposite sex and at whatever point that is the probability is you will not have very much information about fertility. And that's where we we think there's a big gap. So once you start to go to a gender identity clinic, you will have discussions about hormones that will allow you to move gradually into the sex that you you wish to be. And whether it's testosterone or oestrogen, it will have a damaging effect on your eggs and your sperm. So we need to be able to offer fertility preservation before hormonal treatment starts. So for a trans woman, the sperm that's being produced is perfectly healthy until such point as oestrogen is started. And for a trans man, the cycle continues and the eggs are perfectly fine until testosterone is started. So we have a window of opportunity um, when the trans man or trans woman may have been living as a trans man or woman for some time, but haven't started the hormones. We are starting to get more and more referrals because the gender identity clinics are realising this is a window of opportunity. And thankfully we're starting to see more NHS funding of, of, of that transitioning process. So the NHS will fund fertility preservation in patients undergoing chemotherapy or uh, cancer treatments, uh, removal of testicles and so forth. They are now starting to fund this process which is I think amazing. So we have to catch the people at the point where hormones are being discussed.
0: And am I right in saying that you've done some lobbying locally with regards to your CCG to have that funding?
1: We have, and it's literally just come through that we have funding in Sussex for uh, transitioning patients to have their fertility preserved before they start hormone therapy, which is amazing.
0: And I know part of that conversation is about addressing a person's sexual orientation,
1: Yes, it is really, really important to open up a conversation about if you are able to freeze sperm or eggs, how do you think you would want to use the sperm or eggs in the future? And it's inevitable, it's going to be different if you're a trans woman who has a relationship with another woman or a trans woman who has a relationship with a man. And we therefore have to explore if the sperm is going to be used in fertilizing an egg from a trans woman or whether the sperm will be used in a surrogacy arrangement and fertilizing a donor egg or the surrogate's egg in a a surrogacy situation. The screening is different but there's also uh, an important conversation to be had about the potential for the fertility treatment to work and how it might work and how long it might take and the chances of success. That's really important to have and I think it's also making that person really think a little bit about their future as a parent and how it might look, even if it's a long, long way off. It does mean that there are no regrets at the point we have the sperm frozen safely in liquid nitrogen. It's been screened as required by current UK law to be used in the, in the way that that person would want.
0: One of the things that has come up in some of the conversations that I've had uh, today with Thomas and Michael talking about their surrogacy and with Satch talking about their future family was the story that is told to their child. And I'm interested in the support aspect of what the Agora offers people. Obviously you're enabling These families to be created, modern families, which is what this remarkable science enables us to do. But then there's that story, and I know you've created a book, and it's the telling to the child of their story and also to a family's wider community. How do you feel that we are preparing ourselves to, to help people tell their stories?
1: That's quite a big question to answer because one of the things that I'm passionate about is opening up the conversation about fertility per se. So if a couple are comfortable talking, to a friend or to a family member about the process they're going through, they will be so much more comfortable talking to their child because their child will be growing up with their own story and it's really quite a special and remarkable story to be wanted so much to have gone through all these steps uh, to you know to be created. And, and I see this particularly with uh, patients having gone through egg donation as well, uh, very, very much so. So I think we are starting by trying to talk a little bit more about fertility. We are also sowing the seed of how important it is that once they have a child, they talk to their child from a young age, a really young age that they start talking about their, you know, who they are and how they came to be. And we introduce that through counselling as well. A lot of our patients will have implications counselling. It's not compulsory, but it's something we strongly recommend, particularly using donor sperm, donor eggs or surrogacy. It's a very important part of the journey to really understand as a parent or as a future parent what your child might be asking you and how to convey those messages. Um, And all the way through, we, we try to direct our patients to some resources, donor Conception Network and other groups to help them find the information they need. The first thing we have to find out from a trans man is, is there good fertility there and can we preserve it? So the first steps would be to have an internal, ideally internal, transvaginal scan or transabdominal scan, some trans men would prefer that to see what the ovaries look like and to see if there are small follicles which contain eggs. And we would also do a blood test to look at a hormone called AMH, or anti hormone, uh, which is a marker of egg fertility or egg reserve for biological age. With that information, we can give a fairly accurate idea to the trans man of the likelihood of being able to retrieve healthy eggs to freeze. And obviously we'd discuss Mm -hmm. with the patient their age and how many eggs would be ideal to to freeze in in terms of their age. We would also explain the uh, importance of remembering that eggs on their own, frozen, are less viable Mm -hmm. than embryos. And we'd have that discussion about whether it would be sensible to consider putting donor sperm with the eggs to freeze embryos, which do have a better survival rate currently at the moment with our current research knowledge, so we'd look a little bit at sexual orientation and if uh, the trans man is orientated towards having relationship with other women uh, donor sperm would be required to make um, children in the future so it might be a conversation to have at that point should we consider getting some donor sperm and fertilizing your eggs before they're frozen then we would sit down and plan the cycle and i would talk very carefully through what that process would involve ideally that would involve monitoring using internal transvaginal scans but again it can be for some patients difficult so we'd look at the restrictions that um that are imposed when you scan somebody through the tummy you don't see quite as clearly the ovary we'd also talk about the actual process of retrieving the eggs which is done under anesthetic and it's just they need to understand what would happen when they're asleep. We would um, scan internally for that process and we would put a needle into the ovary to collect the fluid and with that the eggs and freeze the eggs. I think that given an overall picture, they would go away, have a little think about it and then we would arrange for them to see a nurse, talk it through, get some dates in the diary to start the treatment and make sure that they were completely happy. We give them a lot of patient support at that point. And one of the things I am looking at is building up a community of buddies specifically uh, to support people who have a little bit of apprehension about going through the process so they can talk to somebody who's already been through the process. Um, and then we would um, proceed. And I, and I think the important thing that we do emphasize here is that if they've got any issues at all with internal examinations, they're going to be fine. And I think you've spoken to Jane. you know, they're, they're, This is a clinic that takes that very seriously.
0: Jane spoke about it, Anne Satch mm. spoke about it. And I think one of the interesting things that Jane raised was that despite sometimes when the sedation is in effect, that the body still reacts yeah. how the body reacts, which is obviously something as a clinic that you have to work around and explain to patients. But the fact that, again, the dialogue is there is yes. reassuring to people because that could be one of the hurdles to even stop them coming in the door couldn't it
1: oh absolutely and I think that that for many of the patients is this what am I going to have to put myself through and the reality is I say to people just come along and have a chat because it may not be for you but the probability is we'll be able to get around any sort of psychological issues you have about internal examination you know even if that involves taking some drugs that will help with anxiety help to relax you we will we will be able to help you Um, because a lot of it is the the apprehension makes it worse and as i'm sure jane will have explained is once you start to work with a patient you can really encourage them to feel more relaxed and more confident that they will be able to do it
0: because there's an assumption that as a woman it's something that you wouldn't have a problem with no without the consideration of what being a woman actually means in, in the broader sense I think that's a. I d- that's I think so,
1: and I, I think if you have been living for a while as a trans man, the 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 idea of a vaginal examination is one that may fill you with apprehension and unpleasant feelings, and and therefore we have to be very sensitive to that. I think we can apply that to a number of other situations, which are you know which we'll find in in you know lesbian women, we'll find it in women who have perhaps experienced sexual trauma in their childhood or, or, or in a past relationship. So we are very sensitive to that.
0: On the other side of the scale, we've got the, the treatment for a trans woman.
1: Yes, if you're a trans woman, it is important for me to, to talk you through whether you've gone through a normal puberty. So we are seeing more younger people coming through who may have puberty suppressed and you know that's that's coming in but the majority of patients i'm seeing will have gone through a normal puberty which will have involved testosterone making changes on the body and those changes are obviously deepening of the voice facial hair development of the testes and the start of sperm production and the ability to ejaculate sperm i always touch very gently on how do you feel about you know ejaculation because to freeze sperm we are going to have to ask you to um, ejaculate and sometimes we actually have a little bit of a laugh about it and they'll say well does that mean I have to wank yeah and 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 we kind of just say yeah it's probably the the best way of describing it but that's what you will have to do but try to think about it as your future fertility just think about this as a process that you're doing to be able to have children and and actually that will make it much easier to you know to to be able to do and then we talk about the sexual orientation and how it's important to make sure that the sperm has the ability of being used in the future and that we've done all the screening tests and that all the consent forms are correctly filled out and we obviously support a great deal the actual filling out the consent forms they fill out the consent forms but once they're fully informed of all the options and then we generally get them to come in three or maybe four times to produce a sample they can produce a sample at home but as long as home isn't too far half an hour three quarters of an hour away that's absolutely fine as long as they can identify that it's their sperm and and write you know and, and sign that the process for freezing sperm You know, trans woman is so much simpler than to freeze eggs. You know, it is usually one appointment to see the doctor talk it through and then come in to do the freezing.
0: The work that you've done enabling this community to have access to treatment is so freeing for them. I was talking with Satch about being able to have the conversation about to the child the future child's grandparents Mm. that there is going to be grandparents in the same conversation with with thomas and jason that they were able to have with with their parents that they were going to be, be able to provide them with grandchildren which is such an issue for parents of gay or trans children and i'm interested as well in how as a clinic and as an individual you're maybe finding the conversations are going with your contemporaries about the importance of this level of attention being put on this community with regards to the treatment being enabled and the support. Do you feel that more clinics are opening up to it and are getting their heads around the importance of enabling these communities, more so the trans community, because I know that's something that is a, is a growing area of interest in the work that you've been doing?
1: I think it is important that it's normalised, it's normalising, and it's not necessarily fertility treatment. It's making sure that everybody has that chance of having a child if that's what they would like to do in the future, giving people the choice and empowering them with the knowledge that makes them give all the options consideration so they make the right choice for themselves and never regret, never go back and say, I wish somebody had told me this or that. I think there is definitely a movement in fertility clinics in the UK to um, open their doors to the LGBT population. Some clinics are doing it in a personalised way as we are and taking a real interest in their community. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, I love living in Brighton and it's a, it's a it's a vibrant city full of amazing people, all very different and the LGBT community is just part of that colour that we have and I embrace it fully and I actually enjoy learning from that community what we can do better and and re- I really enjoy listening to them so I think as the programs develop they're very much shaped by what the patients tell us they'd like to see more I've, I've worked with with non-binary patients and that work has enriched my knowledge of of how we should be communicating better and being more sensitive and and I think we've got some great work to do around surrogacy because it's a fairly new area. A lot of patients who have previously adopted, gay, gay couples who've adopted in the past, are now looking at surrogacy in the UK as a real option and not thinking, well, I can't afford it or I have to go to the States. And I think re- I've really enjoyed working you know, with the couples we've seen so far. Thomas and Jason have are, you know, been just one of these couples where they've worked with me, they've done, they've come up to Fertility Fest, they've seen some of the really important work we're doing. Julie and Mike have done amazingly well to keep going in the way that they did and thankfully they've got, you know, beautiful Finley now and it's, it's been a a lovely happy ending to what could have been, you know, uh, just a roller coaster of disasters for them. So Julie came to me, she wasn't menstruating, she came to me with a condition called hypergodonism. so her hormonal stimulation of the ovary was was not working normally. So there was an element of putting that right. But she was also in an age group where fertility was, was starting to decline and uh, her husband had had a vasectomy. So we needed to consider re- retrieval of sperm. And having discussed all the issues, we went ahead with an IVF treatment cycle. His sperm was retrieved and we used ICSI. And unfortunately, that cycle didn't work and we gradually moved towards the point where i had to say to julie that i didn't feel it would work with her own eggs her fertility was very low and we talked about egg donation for quite a while really and i think they'll explore that with you in a little bit more detail as to why they finally decided to go down that route and how they went down that route but Julie's sister kindly offered to donate her eggs and I met with her and we sat down and, you know, talked very openly about how the relationship would work. How would the child feel, you know, with a donor that was Julie's sister? And um, they, you have to really explore the what-ifs of the relationship, the relationship between the husband and his sister-in-law and the genetic parent of, of their child. But it was clear that they were really, really close as as a family, and they went ahead. The first cycle led to a successful pregnancy, but the child had multiple problems, and eventually, the I think the pregnancy ended, and and it was a terrible, terrible moment for us, and for I mean for Julie and um, her husband Mike. It was absolutely devastating but we felt it at the clinic we felt all of that pain and when I saw Julie afterwards and she told me about the funeral of their baby I I I didn't think she would get up off the floor I didn't think she would actually be strong enough to keep going but she did and her sister offered to donate again and it all went Beautifully, but but it was a long journey to get there, and I think I could sense it from the emails coming through during the pregnancy. There was so much tension, you know. Will this really happen? Will Will the baby be eventually born, and will I be cuddling my baby? And, it, and it's it's been a wonderful experience to meet up with Julie and Mike and the little boy recently. It was uh, quite an emotional moment for all of us, really, unbelievably emotional because Julie does actually say how this has transformed their lives in in no other way that uh, that it's it's been a little miracle and i i no, i do love my job because every baby that we help to bring into the world is is a little miracle um but some you you really see have been true stories that you just didn't uh, feel that, that could happen and uh, hers was one of them
0: because the expectation when it's a donor especially a family member yeah. is huge on on both sides.
1: Absolutely and and the expectation was oh, it'll be fine and when you get the pregnancy that's a donor egg you think well nothing can possibly go wrong now it's all going to be fine. You no know, we were told that the chances of a pregnancy with a donor egg were going to be really high and now we're pregnant and everything's going to go fine and of course when it doesn't you just don't prepare yourself for that. I have seen a number now of sister to sister donations and I don't think it can work for everybody, but if you have a close and loving relationship with a sibling, then it can actually be a really beautiful way of of giving somebody something. You, you, I said to Julie, you will always find there'll be a time when you give back something, and you it'll be when you don't expect it. It really will be, but um, I think for the child also, I think it is, it is a lovely way um, of... of of having been created because you know that actually in that bag of genes that happens to be if you like your aunt genes is your mother's genes there's so much crossover that you you are actually it's it's as close as you can have to having had the you know the direct genetic egg of your mother
0: and there was a similar theme in the conversation i had with thomas and jason about how they are now in a position where their surrogate might be a known family member and through having the conversations of where they were at and what they needed it enabled the conversations to happen amongst yeah. their family members and I think that's a similar thing with Julie and yeah. her sister that by sharing what's going on with your family which a lot of people sadly don't do it's enabled this development in in their journey and obviously an amazing outcome of of, of a baby do you feel more people are opening up for so long we know that a lot of people keep this as as something that they're embarrassed about, that they don't want to talk to their family about, especially if it a, seems a fertile family and everybody around them is having having success.
1: I, I think you're absolutely right that for a lot of the people I see, they would not open up that conversation with their close family members, either because they don't have that close and warm relationship, or they do feel that they wouldn't want their parents to know or their you know parents-in-law to know. It's it, no, it couldn't it couldn't possibly be be right to tell them and they keep it to themselves but i think if you look at it you know when when it when it is a good relationship between between family members when you see the happiness that that the giving is is what brings a lot of happiness known donation you know when you're giving something and you're giving it altruistically like that it's a good feeling too and and i think the child ultimately it's about the child the child has been brought into the family feeling very loved, very loved.
0: One more question in terms of a gay couple coming in to go down the surrogate route. And we've got the story of Thomas and Jason talking about how they came into this so informed. But if men are wondering whether it's an option for both of them to have that genetic link to their their future child... What's common? Is it common for both parties to, to freeze their sperm? Does, does one do it more often?
1: I don't know that there's an answer to what's more common. I think it's, it, it, it's the same in a same-sex female relationship. Parenting may not be for both, but if it's on the cards that they would like at some point to be the genetic parent of the child, it's so much easier to assess them both at the same time and to consider freezing sperm at the same time whilst they're young and that they've got their best fertility because you never know what might happen in 2 or 3 years time and their fertility might decline so what we encourage men to do in a gay relationship is perhaps really think about that question think about coming in and having some some good uh, in-depth male fertility screening and then make some lifestyle changes if the f- sperm quality isn't maybe that good and at the point where it's it's you know as good as it can be to freeze their samples and to freeze it, obviously, in a way that they can use it in a surrogacy arrangement. Then the job's done. They can, they can just relax and think about the future and come back, and the sperm is there. So it, it is a sort of fertility preservation, but thinking, think about doing it at the optimum time.
0: Because one thing that Thomas and Jason said was that they were surprised that there were issues with both of their samples. It wasn't something that they'd ever considered. And whilst it hasn't prevented any further treatment, because we talked about how they were going to having ICSI just that awareness wasn't something that they had had because they were saying they're both in their 30s and they assumed everything was fine so it's that it's that empowerment of the knowledge as well isn't it it,
1: it is and it's 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 the reality that, that male fertility is on the decline there are factors in the environment there are lifestyle issues that are affecting sperm quality and it, it certainly wasn't the case you know that neither thomas and J- jason had particular lifestyle issues that i said no you mustn't do this or you mustn't do that that was that that just happened to be you know the, the the quality of the sperm at the time, but knowing that going in with the knowledge is so important.
0: And whilst we're just talking about that issue of male fertility, are you seeing an increase in poor sperm health or lower sperm counts?
1: Well, it's an unfair question to ask somebody who sits in a fertility clinic because I really only see I really only see infertile couples. I'm starting to see more more men coming through for surrogacy, so that you know I, I may change my opinion, but we are seeing. A lot of male infertility that's quite subtle, but it's often underlying an unexplained situation. And we, we need to invest a lot more in male fertility research so that we can really understand what exactly is triggering this.
0: Isn't Carol doing amazing work? And you can hear the Agora Journals once we go live. To make sure you know exactly when that happens, visit bit.ly forward slash Agora Journeys. Pop in your details and we'll let you know once we launch.